my dream, man, to go to America and be an American. Just experience how to, how Americans live like and just be one of them. That's what I've always wanted to do, you know. That's what I've always wanted to be. Just go to America and live there and be an American. People need to understand that. I've volunteered for this, right, and you guys didn't ask for it, but then I believed in you. I provided service for you. I've sacrificed a lot. I've played a huge role in saving so many American lives. Why was I being left behind? What, for, what did I ever do, man? In March 2016, I returned to Iraq to reunite with my interpreter for the first time since 2004. My mission? Show him that I haven't given up on him, tell his story to the world, and find a way to bring him and his family safely to America. My name is Angelo, and this is his story. Water Up Media, this is Mikey, the incredible true story of an Iraqi interpreter and a Marine sniper who refuses to leave him behind. Act 1, How We Met. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Bob Edwards. U.S. Marines have begun to pull back from their positions in Fallujah, indicating an end to their month-long siege of the Sunni-dominated city, that it might be over. Responsibility for security and for pursuing... It was June of 2004. I was back in Iraq after volunteering to be a combat replacement for Marines lost in what would turn out to be the first of two major battles to retake Fallujah from al-Qaeda-backed insurgents. I was scheduled to get out, but I couldn't live with myself knowing that men I had trained and fought beside were risking their lives in Iraq while I was biding my time at the Camp Horner Gym in Camp Pendleton, California. It was soon after arriving that I met Mikey, an 18-year-old baby-faced Iraqi interpreter with impeccable English and the mouth of a drunk Marine. After serving with an Army Psychological Operations team during the Battle of Fallujah, he had requested to be transferred to the Marines. Details of why will be told later in the episode. So after speaking to my uh, site manager um, and explained to the, the situation to him thoroughly, he uh, agreed to, I mean, uh, assign me to a Marine unit, which was the, the uh, security company of uh, RCT-1, Regimental Combat Team 1. I was assigned to this uh, company and I was uh, rolling with the uh, Secure platoon, and this is how I met my brother, Matt Victoriano. We started to operate in, around the edges of the city of Fallujah. Uh, basically, security platoon is just um, escort service. That's what they do, you know, just escort people. Uh, I mean, high-ranking officers and uh, uh, journalists from one place to another and provide security for them. That's what security platoon does. So we started to operate around the edges of city, the, the city of Fallujah and uh, in Karma, and we did some missions in Ramadi's area, and then uh, we were sent to Al Mamadiya. It's uh, a city southern uh, Baghdad to conduct some high secret operations alongside with the sniper, scout sniper team. 
which was led, being led by Matt Victoriano. I immediately took to Mikey. I had learned during my two years of college before joining the Marines that I had a strong desire to experience foreign cultures and learn their languages. That desire led to an award for speaking Swahili while training with the Kenyan Army. It also helped keep my team alive during my first deployment. The fact that Mikey wanted to be an American, spoke fluent English, was kind, funny, and intelligent, made it hard to not want to decompress from missions by spending time with him. On our off time, he'd teach me Arabic while smoking cigarettes. I'd answer questions about American culture, and we both swap F-bombs while talking about life with the Marines. Because one of my interpreters from my first deployment had been killed by insurgents, I understood the incredible risk that Mikey was taking by helping me and my Marines. When the time came to return home, little did I know that by becoming close to Mikey, I was exposing my heart and soul to the pain, fear, and guilt that comes with leaving a brother behind inside enemy territory. Our lives would be inextricably linked from that point forward. Before we begin Act 2, I'd like to personally thank Spotter Up Media for believing in me, my fellow combat veterans, and our interpreters by supporting the production of this podcast. Without them, it wouldn't be possible. Spotter Up Media provides an online platform for combat veterans and industry professionals to share their ideas and experiences with one another to create media projects that have a lasting and positive impact. Visit spotterupmedia.com to learn more. Act 2, Cigarette Factory. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Jubilation is still one of the most important threads of the news today from Iraq, but so are chaos, looting, arson, assassination, and continued combat. In Najaf, in central Iraq, a crowd attacked and killed two Shiite Muslim clerics inside a famous mosque. In central Baghdad, a suicide bomber struck a checkpoint manned by U.S. Marines, and elsewhere in the city, looters broke into government offices and the mansions of some of Iraq's former leaders. There was sporadic fighting, some of it quite heavy, between U.S. troops and fighters loyal to Saddam Hussein. The situation remains confused and dangerous as U.S. forces attempt to secure Baghdad and other parts of the country. This hour, as we'll Baghdad fell, 1st Battalion, 4th Marines occupied the Bath Party headquarters and cigarette factory located in Saddam City, Baghdad, where lived a young 17-year-old boy who dreamed of coming to America. I was born and raised in Baghdad, Saddam City, in 1985, September 2nd. When uh, I heard that the Americans were going to come to liberate the Iraqi people from Saddam's regime, I was so eager to meet them and to give the hand of support to them as much as possible. After they came across my city, I wasn't, you know, uh, I've never imagined that I would ever see them for real, you know, except on TV and on movies. So uh, I was happy and so was my family. Uh, after they were, after they stationed in, on the edges of the city where I lived in, Saddam City back then, but now they call it Saddam City, they changed the name. I uh, <clears throat> tried to get close to them, you know, and say hi, speak to the guys, the, the Marines back then, and uh, tried to support them in translation and communicating to the, to the locals who lived in that area. It turns out, 
While I was sitting on the fifth floor of the cigarette factory, shooting rolls of paper out of kids' hands who were trying to set it on fire, Mikey was somewhere in Saddam City trying to help us in any way he could. So I used to go and stay with them from like 7.30 in the morning up to uh, sunset, basically, for free. I wasn't getting, getting paid or anything. But they did provide me with water and food and stuff. They gave me MREs and some sna Snickers. <laughs> Snickers? <laughs> or snacks. Snacks. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Yeah, that's funny. It's funny? Yeah. Are you going to keep that on video or are you going to filter it later? I don't know. I'll figure it out. Okay. I mean, I'm sure they did, did, give, did give you Snickers. They did. <laughs> uh, so uh, I uh, decided to get a job with them, but I did not know how. And uh, one day, I remember one of the, the uh, friends that I had back then, which I don't know if he's still alive or dead or anything. I've lost contact with ever since 2003. Um, he spoke to me about the Americans who were stationed at the cigarette factory. Uh, it was southeast of Sada City. Uh, they were hiring Iraqis to do some, like, some sort of military work, but he did not know the name of or the branch of military unit that they were hiring or looking for. So I asked him about the time and date, and he said it was uh, on Sunday at 7 o'clock in the morning. Wait, the cigarette factory in Sada City? Yeah. The one I was telling you about? Yeah. Oh, no shit. The same place. Wait, what was the date on that again? The date? Yeah. I will tell you when I was hired. No, that you went to the cigarette factory. Yeah. Uh, it was in August uh, 2003. Sometime in August 2003. Wow. It was like four months after the Marines left and the U.S. Army came in mm -hmm. and took over yeah. the place. By this time, 1-4 had been moved to Babylon province south of Baghdad, and my four-man sniper team found itself stretched thin protecting the battalion's northern flank in the Triangle of Death. Further north, little did Mikey know at the time, but his decisions to go to the cigarette factory would forever change his life. So I went to the, to the cigarette factory on that Sunday at the same time, 7 o'clock. Uh, I was surprised to find that there were like several hundreds of people waiting at the front gate of the cigarette factory waiting to you know, meet with the, the, the Americans and to enlist for this service. So uh, at 9 o'clock, an American major army major uh, walked out of the gate with an interpreter and he started to walk among this huge crowd and he started to pick people. I uh, tried to push around, my, I mean cut my way through the, the crowd and try to get close to the guy and tell him that I knew English and I would really love to uh, be part of what they're doing and support, you know. So uh, I started yelling, sir, sir, you know, and he looked at me, I drew his attention at that time. And I told him that I was an uh, English language speaker and I could help a lot if he ever you know, chooses me. So he looked at me really weird and he was surprised at the same time to you know, see a local national with uh, simple clothing and everything you know, who spoke English at that time. And he uh, called me in and he shook my hand and asked me to follow him. I was the only person that was, you know, uh, being escorted from the crowd directly, straight, no questions asked or anything, to the inside of the, the camp and the main office of their compound. Can you pause that? The phone is... Or you can clip it later if you'd like. That's fine. Okay. No, so, you can answer it if you want. Oh, you weren't going to answer it? 
Yeah, the phone's there. I don't know who's calling. Okay. Could be my wife, could be... Your boss? <laughs> you know who's singing? Uh, Winston and Yandel? <laughs> no? That missed call brings up an interesting distinction between America and Iraq when it comes to technology and social life. In the U.S., on either end of the spectrum, there are people who ignore their phones or take days to respond, and then there are people so concerned with work or their extended social networks that they won't put their phones down. In Iraq, yes, they have friends texting to hang out and spouses calling to complain, but receiving a call with screams in the background notifying you that a family member was killed by ISIS is commonplace. This happens later on in the season. So yeah, uh, he, after he escorted me in, then he started bringing in people from the crowds. And he asked me to monitor them and tell them what to do. So I was in command at the very first minute of everything, of the whole process. He didn't even know my name, by the way. Because uh, my name is a, little bit, a bit hard to be pronounced by foreigners, you know. So they started calling me Mr. M. That was my first Mr. Nickname. M? Yeah, that was my first uh, nickname given by the Americans. Mr. M. <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, he asked me to do some physical training, like uh, push-ups, sit-ups, and stuff, to, just to confirm that I'm uh, uh, physically capable to do the job. So uh, he asked for 15 push-ups, I did 30. <laughs> he asked for 20 sit-ups, I did 40. I did them, everything I did double, you know, basically. So he was really, you know, happy to have me among his team. And uh, they uh, took uh, a copy of our IDs and they wrote our names down and stuff. And they uh, told us to come back and visit him again, like uh, seven days afterwards. So after those seven days passed away, you know, uh, I went back to the same place and uh, they were there waiting for us. I walk up to the gate and the interpreter asked me by my name and gave him the name. He looked up on the list that he had and he opened the door and let me in. Let me in. <clears throat> and then uh, after the, the uh, whole list of people were ready and set and uh, present, they started to uh, explain it to us about what we're going to be doing and what kind of things that we need to do before we actually become what we are going to be. Uh, they explained the type of work that we're going to be doing. I didn't really have a choice other than accepting because that's what I always wanted to do, you know, and just to help people. That's basically my main goal of this whole thing. Because it's something that I believed in, you know. Even though the, 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 the salary that they say they're going to be paying us wasn't really worth it, you know, <laughs> worth the risk or anything. How much was it? Well, uh, after, uh, I'll tell you everything. Sequently. One of the biggest failures of U.S. reconstruction efforts in Iraq was providing the common man with an economic justification for obeying laws and fighting insurgency. $70 a month doesn't go much further in Iraq than it does in the U.S. And as you'll hear in a few minutes, when faced with imminent death, a paycheck that can barely feed you, let alone your family, doesn't provide much incentive to stick around and fight. After we were all there, they started loading us uh, in the, those American semi-trailer trucks in the back of them. And they drove us down to uh, a very far area, it was near Hela, uh, called uh, uh, Jorfa Sahar. 
that was the name of the, 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 the city or the camp, the boot camp where, you know, built him. We went there and we stayed there for seven days, you know, doing PT training from 4.30 in the morning up to 5 p.m. every day, constantly, non-stop. It was tough for me because it was, uh, I was only 17 and a half by that time. I was really young and I've never experienced anything before. I uh, did really good on uh, in running, you know, and uh, physical workout and PT. Uh, I also uh, was the third person among the whole group in, you know, at the range, which is something that I've never done before. <laughs> I've never shot an AK-47 up till that moment, you know. Uh, and I didn't even start. I didn't even smoke back then until I did all of this. Oh, you didn't? You weren't even smoking then? No, I started smoking in 2003 when I start, you know, doing this. <laughs> Notice our cops just then. Mikey and I shared a hotel room during our reunion. I could tell just by observing him that he was extremely stressed out. Not just because of the danger involved with us meeting, but because of 13 years of being hunted, surviving ambushes, IEDs, and car bombs, not being able to provide for his wife and son, and constantly attending funerals for cousins killed fighting ISIS. This is why he smokes two packs a day. At first, I asked him to smoke in the bathroom with the vent on, but because we were constantly socializing and recording, he was either smoking during an interview or coming out of the bathroom to tell me something. But after days of hotboxing two packs a day of secondhand smoke, I had had enough. I finally told him that if he didn't stay in the bathroom to smoke, I was going to get myself a separate room. He begged me not to do that and promised to stay in the bathroom. It never worked though. The amount of cigarettes he smoked today meant that he would have to live in the bathroom. The addiction was too controlling. To his credit though, every male in the city was addicted to cigarettes. Even in the malls and restaurants with no smoking signs, men smoked and no one told them not to. In fact, families would bring their children to coffee shops to smoke hookah and socialize. Coming up after the break, it happened overnight. This podcast isn't just about Mikey and me. It's also about you. Time and attention are valuable commodities, and you've chosen to invest 30 minutes in listening to something that's very important to me and my fellow combat veterans. That's why Redbeard Brand and I would like to say thanks by giving you a special listener's discount on their exceptional soaps and beard conditioners. We'd like to give them to you for free, but Redbeard soaps and beard conditioners are handmade by fellow Marine sniper Zeb Barnes and his incredible wife at their home in Lexington, Kentucky. Just as important, a good portion of each sale doesn't go to them. It goes to the nonprofit Help One Now to rescue orphans and other oppressed children. But Redbeard brand also inspires me because they represent the honor, courage, and commitment that defines me and my fellow Marines. Zeb honored his wife's soap-making abilities, and she honored its passion for homebrewing by combining the two to create all-natural beard and hop-infused soap bars and beard balms. They both had the courage to leave their jobs and financial security and start their own business, and they remained committed to one another and their customers. Go to redbeardbrand.com and use the word Mikey, M-I-K-E-Y, to receive a special 20% listener's discount on your first purchase. One last thing. We want to hear stories of honor, courage, and commitment that have impacted you or someone you know. Submit your story to Mikey at spotterupmedia.com by May 1st, and Zeb and I will choose one contributor to share their story on Mikey Podcast and receive a free Redbeard brand soap or beard conditioner. 
All stories will be posted on the Spotter Up Media website. Act 3. It happened overnight. So uh, I was chosen to be the, the squad leader at the age of 17 and a half. I was leading many other people, like 30 people, you know. At that age, I was the youngest. I was, you know, everything. I, the smallest, too. <laughs> but I guess I was smarter than most. This is why I got to be that kind of guy. <clears throat> after that, uh, after we graduated, they paid us 70 bucks. As a, they said, this is as a gift for you, which was a good thing. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> and then uh, we started to, uh, they gave us military clothes, which looked really, really weird and silly, by the way. They were uh, kind of brownish, and they looked like a, a dark color camouflage. It wasn't nothing like the American uniform. But it had a pattern on it, right? What do you mean pattern? You know, like a desert pattern. It wasn't just like straight brown, was it? No, no, it has some camouflage looking stuff, but it was really silly. <laughs> I mean, it looked not really cool. <laughs> um, and uh, I officially became uh, a part of the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps. That's what they called us back then on the uh, 23rd of August, 2003. The U.S. military in Baghdad is beginning to consolidate bases and prepare for an eventual pullback from much of the capital. Iraq's police and the fledgling Civil Defense Corps will take over most security duties in the city. The transfer of power is scheduled for June 30th. In the meantime, the U.S. is trying to lower its profile and responsibility. From Baghdad, NPR's Emily Harris reports. It's 8 a.m. and troops from Iraq's Civil Defense Corps muster for morning drill. This new unit of Iraqi soldiers works at an old Iraqi military base. American troops stayed here until October after the so fall. So we were stationed basically at the secret factory where I first enlisted for the job. And we stayed there for uh, several months, like four months, I think, maybe less. Four months, actually, yes. And uh, we started doing foot patrols and uh, uh, dismounted patrols and started to set up checkpoints and stuff in the, the city of uh, Saddam, which, which is called Saudi City now, uh, under the, the, the direct uh, command and uh, supervision of uh, First Lieutenant Wyatt at that time and uh, Sergeant Roberts and another sergeant named Canales. I don't know whatever happened to those guys because I never got hold of them ever since. They were just vanished. And after staying at the secret factory for four months, uh, because of some stuff that the Americans did, you know, uh, I don't know if it was intentional or if it was just a coincidence or accident, the, the uh, people of Saudi City just turned against us all, all of a sudden, you know. It just happened overnight. For us, in the summer of 2003, the attack seemed to happen overnight too. But looking back at it, the mood of the local population should have told us that things were going to change. Within a few months, the cheers as we drove by changed to disaffected waves. A month later, there were no waves, just disaffected looks. Not long after, there were grenades lobbed from within crowds. Then, IEDs and complex ambushes. Soon after arriving in Babylon province, my team was attached to weapons company 
and we were tasked with establishing a forward operating base at the Musea power plant within what would become the Triangle of Death. Not long after, the entire company was ordered to turn in all explosives, hand and smoke grenades, illumination rounds, rockets, missiles, and mortar rounds. We felt defenseless and exposed, alone, inside enemy territory. My four-man and sometimes two-man team relied on these things to survive ambushes and overwhelming enemy forces. We were told that there was no more enemy, just looters and criminals, and we were given the sole task of providing law and order. The problem was, there were no U.S. aid officials or civil affairs officers to facilitate reconstruction in our area of operations. Fortunately, the commanding officer of Weapons Company, Major Moran, was smart enough to realize that without local governments, schools, or hospitals, there would be no law and order. Despite being spread thin defending the base and conducting security patrols, Major Moran tried his best to rebuild the area. With no money to rebuild, Major Moran used money confiscated from looters to pay people's salaries. Even then, he only had enough manpower and money to start with local mayors and police. As a scout sniper team leader, I was intimately involved with Major Moran's day-to-day -day responsibilities, so I volunteered to help rebuild the school on the other side of our base fence during my time off. Using our interpreter and a couple thousand Iraqi dinar allocated to me from the money taken from looters, I found a local contractor, negotiated a contract to rebuild the school's water and sewage, and began to oversee the work. By then, it was too late. The IEDs and complex ambushes began to inflict casualties. With only four men to provide sniper support for patrols, conduct counter-ambush and recon and surveillance missions, provide overwatch for platoon positions in the heart of the Triangle of Death, and provide overwatch at the forward operating base, my ability to supervise the school reconstruction project went out the window. Which brings us back to why things changed for Mikey and the rest of his men. Saddam City was a shithole. There were no jobs, sewage, clean water, or hope. The only consistent work available to fighting age males was the ICDC. Not only did the ICDC require them to impose American law and order on their own people, it only paid them enough money to feed themselves and not their families. While Mikey was working hard for the American ideal of freedom and democracy in Saddam City, the Shia cleric Muqtad al-Sadr's Iranian-backed Mahdi army was converting Saddam City into Sadr City, ground zero for Shia insurgency. They started to hunt us down and threaten to kill us and they did, they even did kill a few guys of my team. So uh, the, the Americans were afraid that if we stay at the secret factory, something big might happen. So they transferred us to a bigger camp. It was in uh, uh, near a hospital in, on the edge of Sada City for mentally ill people. <laughs> that was the hospital, but the, the, the camp was across the street from we stayed there for uh, several weeks, and that's when I received uh, uh, a direct threat that if I don't quit this job, then Who, I will get killed. How'd you get the threat? Uh, by the Mahdi Army. Now, I mean, they, like some guy walk up to you and hand deliver you a message, or what? Uh, well, he came up to my house, actually, and he knocked the door, and he was very confident that he can do some serious harm. Oh, and he talked directly to you? Yes and said, if you don't quit, I'm gonna kill you? That was basically it. 
because they knew everything about me because they knew that I spoke English and they knew that I was you know being like the the the, uh, the star of the show you know back then because I was supporting everything you know trying to gather intel and stuff and pass it on to the Americans and stuff you know but like uh, weapons hiding and uh, uh, where they sell drugs and stuff because we used to raid those places <clears throat> so um, I basically decided to quit because the, 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 the job and the effort that I was you know doing it wasn't really worth getting killed over you know especially with what was going on in the whole city of Baghdad you know all this damage that has been caused after the Saddam regime collapsed and the looting to the government you know uh, and the, the uh, infrastructure of the whole country it's just was totally wrong and scary so I had to quit but instead of just quitting and getting away you know from Americans I still have that belief within me telling me that I should go back and do more than what I was doing here is your first example of why Mikey is just like so many American combat veterans. He did his part. He volunteered to risk his life to defend freedom and democracy. But when we return home, exhausted and demoralized, we experience once again the freedom and love we volunteered to protect. And we realize that we are the ones who must keep them safe. So I've decided to move my family to a safer place. So we moved them from uh, Asada City to it's like uh, almost 25 kilometers away from Saudi City. It's um, northeast of Baghdad. That's where it is located on the map. So uh, <clears throat> I kept in touch with uh, a couple of interpreters that were working with us back then when I was in the ICDC, the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps. And uh, I've asked them how to apply for an interpreter job because I had the potential and ability to do it, you know, just English speaking. And that's it. I could read, write, you know, speak, so why not? I could get a better salary and have a better life for me and my family, especially with the two disabled brothers that I have, you know, that requires a lot of medical attention and, you know, the, their bills were quite high that we couldn't support them back then. So uh, on the 1st of April 2004, I went to the Green Zone and I applied for inter an interpreter job at Titan Company or corporation. I was hired uh, at the very first minute, you know. As soon as they heard me speaking English, it was like, hey, where have you been, you know? <laughs> That's what, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, <coughs> I still remember his name. Niall Mer, that was his name. He was an Iraqi American. He was uh, being the, the uh, direct manager of Titan Corporation branch in Iraq. So uh, he said, where have you been, man? We definitely, you know, looking for you kind of people. So uh, he uh, brought me a contact. I, uh, I read and signed. Uh, and he said that I'll be going to Fallujah to about the Marines during the push, you know, against the, the Al-Qaeda guys back then in the city of Fallujah. Once again, Mikey's desire to help the Americans, his desire to fight for freedom and democracy, and his desire to provide for his family would lead him down an ever-increasingly dangerous road. This time, and at the heart of one of the most fierce and costliest battles of the Iraq War. So I was sent to Fallujah on the 3rd of April 2004. And, and instead of working for the Marines, I ended up working for the 
U.S. Army, which is definitely not what I wanted to do, you know, <laughs> to be honest. No offense for any U.S. Army veteran. I respect you all, but I decided to go with the Marines instead because they were more uh, efficient and more effective in doing what they're doing, not just, you know. They do some damage, some serious damage if they won't go into someone. That was, I was kind of what you could call action junkie. <laughs> was that okay to say? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'd just like to interject here. This is one interpreter's experience, not all. But that being said, it does give me a source of pride, as I'm sure it will my fellow jarheads. So uh, I ended up working for the, the U.S. Army uh, PSYOPs, Psychological Operations. The, the, the guys with, you know, Humvees and loudspeakers on top that say things that are not real, you know, but the, the listener receiver, he would think they were real, like, you know, like Apache sound or bomb sound or something like that. Just get people away. And it helped, it worked out. So uh, after they introduced me to this uh, Army Captain Paz and uh, Staff Sergeant, what's his name? He's, he's Mexican. Ramirez, I think, something like that. Is it okay to say people names on it? We were um, put on hold for like six days until we actually went out on our first mission. I was really scared to be rolling out with them, you know, because they didn't seem the kind of people that we should, or anyone should actually be, you know, around them in a war, war zone. It was tough. Why is that? Because <clears throat> they were not really caring much, you know. They were just unorganized, basically. Mm. Like they didn't care about doing their job effectively? Yeah, they weren't the kind of people that you would be, you know, uh, uh, comfortable to be around, you know, <laughs> basically. A reality of war that isn't shown in movies or books is that many of our troops aren't selected, trained, or equipped properly for combat. I've experienced this with the Army, Marines, and Navy, and not just with regular forces, but with special operations units as well. <clears throat> I was scared, to be honest, on my first mission, and um, as soon as... Uh, we went to Fallujah uh, from the, the back side of the city, not from the highway part. We got uh, an ambush that started at uh, 12 a.m. midnight and that ended at 7 a.m. in the morning. It was a, a hell of an ambush. For just how many guys were, were you? Uh, we, were, uh, we were supporting the Marines. during the, So there were like a couple... Oh, was this during the battle? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, Fallujah, 2004, in April. Uh, April 15th, maybe less. April 10th, 15th, I'm not, I cannot remember the date. <clears throat> so uh, after this uh, whole ambush, you know, ended, I was happy to be alive. And uh, when the sun came up, I've seen some really stuff that you guys wouldn't like to see. Of, you know, dead bodies all over the place and shattered bodies on here, there, you know, it just was scary for me. Especially with that age, I was, I've just turned 18 at that time. Sitting behind the service desk at the Camp Horno Gym in Camp Pendleton, California, I watched Fox News as a Marine sniper fought during the Battle of Fallujah. I knew that Carino, Sproul, and Gonzalez, snipers I had selected and trained before the invasion, were somewhere in the city. Their lives were in danger, 
while I was enjoying the life of a single Marine in Southern California. Somewhere else in the city, Mikey was trying his best to keep them alive. Next up, a preview of what's to come in the next episode of Mikey. But first... In my experience, it's rare to find somebody at the top of their game who remains a humble, quiet professional. Savage Tactician's shirts, hats, and accessories may scream freedom and courage, but the owners go out of their way to quietly help out fellow Marines like myself. Visit savtac.com, that's S-A-V-T-A-C.com, and use the word Mikey to receive a special 20% listener's discount on your first purchase. Coming up, on the next episode of Mikey. I was detained on uh, July the 25th of 2005, and I stayed in custody for 100 days, exactly. I was um, set free and released innocent, you know, and they apologized saying that uh, it was a mistake and please don't take it too personal. It's like I was going on a, uh, a vacation in Abu Ghraib prison. Don't take it too personal, really. One last thing before we go. Mikey would like to send out a special request to a Marine he met in 2003. Uh, I want to send a message out to a guy, if he ever sees this video, I would really appreciate if he ever tried to get in touch with me, named Ashley Rockle. Uh, brother, if you ever see this video, uh, I just want you to know that I still hold the picture that you had given to me back then in, in uh, April 2003 with you and your wife, Anna Nicole, that was her name. So if you see this video, please try to contact the person who's going to produce this video so I can get hold of you. Uh, and I've looked for you all over the place. I even had to travel all over, all over the city of Baghdad just looking for the guy that I was helping back then, the Marines, Marines unit who was stationed in Saudi City. I uh, forgot the name of the unit, like the division or unit number or anything, but uh, I miss you guys. You were really cool to me and I thank you for that. The interviews heard in this episode were only possible because Mikey placed his life in grave danger to meet me in Iraq. You're not forgotten, brother. Music for this episode of Mikey was provided by Musical Man, Lost Harmonies, Reactor Productions, Neil Cross, and Keith Holt. Recording, mixing, and editing was provided by yours truly. The song you're listening to now is brought to you by the Vigilant Shield Foundation. It was written by retired Marine Sergeant Major Dave Devaney and performed by fellow Marine Steve Thompson and the incredible singer-songwriter Nate Botsford. I've lost too many friends in war. The pain inside is hard to ignore. Every time I think back on them, I pray to God for the pain they end. I see their faces in my sleep, and every time it cuts so deep. I watched my brothers die out there. Took one last breath in that desert air. So hold me tight and tell me it'll be alright. So let me sleep tonight. So give me one more day, one more day to fight. From devil dogs to army snipers, some were corpsmen and all were brothers. Each time that I hear their names, the tears they come and they fall like rain. You know the worst part of it all? It was telling their mothers they were lost to war and knowing I couldn't comfort them 
her screams and cries still fill my head. So hold me tight, tell me it'd be alright. Let me sleep tonight. So give me one more day, one more day to fight. Damn the TV and damn the news. My heart can't handle one more bruise. When will I lose my next friend? I hope that soon this all ends. 21 guns in the last saloon. A couple of medals just won't do. A nation line to sacrifice. And now sound church bells make me cry. So hold me tight. Tell me it'd be alright. Let me sleep tonight. So give me one more day. One more day, one more day 